For our message this morning, I'm going to ask us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. If you're able to, I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13 to 17, the well-known passage describing Jesus' baptism. Here now is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it, saying, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. Why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So God agreed, so John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Please be seated. Baptism is one of those issues that honestly has several different understandings of what it means and, for that matter, why we do it. Here at First Union Church, we do not believe that water baptism by itself is a saving event, but we have friends from other Christian denominations that aren't so sure. For example, let's say that you have a friend and they have not been to church since they were a child, but it is not unusual to hear them say, my parents had me baptized as a child, so I guess that makes me a Christian, right? Now, in contrast to that view, will be somebody who comes from a background that they believe that baptism is by immersion after a profession of faith. And they would say, no, I was baptized when I was an early teenager or when I was a young adult when I accepted Christ as my Savior. As a union church, we have people in this room today who come from each of those backgrounds and gradations in between. And so with that in mind, let me tell you a story. There we are. Let me tell you a story. It's about a man, and he's walking along the banks of the river that's located in his hometown. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and he comes upon a, a baptismal service that one of the local churches was holding. Well, the man walked right down into the water, stood, up, stood next to the pastor. The pastor didn't know him, but he turns to him and he said, Mr., are you ready to find Jesus? And the man says, yes, I am, Pastor. So the minister dunks him under the water and pulls him back up, and he says, have you found Jesus? And the man says, no, I haven't. Well, the preacher repeats it. He dunks him again, and he holds him under for just a little bit longer, and he says, now have you found Jesus? The man says, no, I haven't, Pastor. Well, the, frust the minister is getting a little frustrated, and so he holds him down a third time, this time for about 30 seconds. And he brings him up out of the water and in a rather harsh tone. He says, are you sure you haven't found Jesus yet? And the man is gasping for breath and he wipes his eyes and he says, no, pastor, I haven't. Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> the point to the story, baptism isn't where we find Jesus. He finds us. He calls us by the calling of his Holy Spirit. And when we baptize or dedicate a child, we're pointing forward to that event 
which will come in the future when they will make their own profession of faith. At which point, I believe that it is right and proper for them to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. But did you know that there are seven different types of baptism that are mentioned in Scripture? Seven different kinds. Let's walk through them. Just kind of a historical overview here. The first one is the baptism of Moses. The baptism of Moses. It's described in 1 Corinthians 10 when the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. It says they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The idea here is that when they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, yes, real event, really happened, really dry ground, would have been absolutely amazing to see. Amen. Cecil B. DeMille's treatment of it is probably not far off if you've seen the famous movie. But there's also a beautiful picture there. There is a symbolism as well. The baptism of the nation of Israel as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Next, there is what's called the, the baptism of John, meaning John the, John the Baptist. I always used to call him John the Baptizer. Johannian the Immerser is what some of the ancient writings refer to him as. He preached repentance of sins in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And the people he baptized in the Jordan River were Jews. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But those who were baptized by John the Baptizer were showing their faith in his message, in their need to confess their sin, but they were professing their faith in the Messiah who was to come. Next, there's the event that we just talked about a moment ago, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus identifies with us in baptism. Now, he was sinless, and yes, he didn't need to repent of any sin, but he still came to be baptized. And in that event, Jesus gives his public approval to John the baptizer, but he also begins his public ministry, which lasted the next three and a half years. So there's three different types so far. Next, baptism of fire. Baptism of fire. Just two verses before what we read this morning, John the Baptist says the following, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Jesus is speaking of the day when he will judge the world for its sin in the last day when the unrepentant are cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 15. Next, there is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 12, John the baptizer says Jesus would baptize men with the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual baptism. It happens the point we come to a saving faith. The moment we first believed is the terminology often used. We are immersed in the Holy Spirit at that moment. The thief on the cross was not baptized with water, but he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. In that sense, this is the baptism that saves because it comes to anybody who professes Jesus as their Savior. Next, there is what was called the baptism of the cross. Mark 10, verse 35 to 39. Jesus uses the language of baptism to refer to his sufferings. It pictures the way he drank of the cup that was filled with your sin and my sin. It's, it, in that sense, the sins of the world are put into one cup and literally poured out upon him while he's on the cross. 
he identifies with our sin as he bore our sin on the cross. We often use the phrase, he who knew no sin was made sin for you and for me. And then, lastly, baptism of believers. A washing in water. Oh, okay, that's not one of my slides. They'll, uh, they'll reboot the computer. They'll, they'll get that fixed. The baptism of believers. It's a washing in water that symbolizes the action of the Holy Spirit that has already taken place. It's one of two ordinances given to the church, and it pictures some wonderful imagery. When we come to a saving faith in Christ and we follow him in baptism, in that sense, we're buried with him. We rise again to walk in newness of life. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that saves us, but water baptism is the outward and the public expression of that event. This is what First Union Church has done in the summertime when they baptize by immersion at Hessel Beach or somewhere else here along the bay. So seven different kinds of baptism are referenced within the Bible. Now, people will ask this question. They'll say, well, why did Jesus seek to be baptized? Well, I'm going to follow kind of an infamous template for sermons. Pastors are infamous for having three-point sermons. Well, I'm going to suggest to us there are three reasons why Jesus was baptized and why we are told to follow him in baptism. And those reasons are, let's see if we're ready to click ahead now. Here we go. Humility, commitment, and identification. One more, there There we go. Humility, commitment, and identification. It's important we realize that John, John the baptizer didn't just come up with this idea on his own. It's not like he's preaching and he pauses and looks around and he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go into the water and I'll dunk you guys. It'll be fun. I don't think that's what happened. His ministry is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And his message was very straightforward. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 3, 2. Now we have to understand the context of the passages here. The Jews are looking for a deliverer because they had been occupied by an oppressive foreign power. At that point in time, it was the Romans, but before that, they were occupied by the Greeks, and before that, the Persians, and before that, the Babylonians. And for this reason, they longed for deliverance. But it was even more than that. Israel was a people whose relationship with God had grown cold. Now, hundreds of years earlier, God chose Abraham, Abram, to be the patriarch of his people. And like many relationships, it started out strong. But through the years, complacency sets in. The Israelites began to feel a certain sense of smugness, a certain sense of entitlement. They held a mindset in which they took God for granted and Quite honestly, God wasn't going to accept that for very long. Here's a brief history of God's relationship with Israel. For example, God blesses and Israel enjoys. But over time, Israel becomes complacent and takes God for granted, turns her back on him, and God gets Israel's attention through tragedy. The Israelites repent and the relationship is restored. And the cycle then often begins again. Along comes John the baptizer during a down cycle in Israel's relationship with God. 
they become complacent again. They've taken God for granted again. They turn their backs on him again. And in order to get their attention, God allowed them to experience discomfort. Indeed, sometimes to experience significant discomfort. Now, people say, well, they brought it on themselves. Well, that is true. But nonetheless, God allowed it. And he used it to call them back to him, to call them to repentance. And after all, if we're really honest, doesn't he sometimes do that with us? He does that in our personal lives. He does that in the lives of local churches. I think he does that in the lives of nations. That's why we need to be praying. We need to be praying that people will recognize that and that God will move in the hearts of men and women and he will call them back to him. Not just here in the United States, but around the world. Here was the thing. is God's always provided a deliverer in the past of Israel. He sent Moses. He sent David. He sent the prophets. And so there was great anticipation that this next deliverer was going to be the Messiah who was prophesied to come. And as the preparer of the way, John the baptizer says what has to be said, which is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there's something else we have to remember too. Judaism was popular during the times when God was blessing his people. There were other nations and people groups that would see what was happening and they wanted to get in on it. And so there were people who were Gentiles they wanted to become Jews. I think it's just human nature. We like to be identified with what seems to be a winning cause. And those Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, they were known as proselytes. Another term for it is converts. A proselyte is a Gentile converting to become a Jew. And there was a three-step process to do that. First, there was a sacrifice. A uh, pair of doves or a heifer were given to the high priest and given as a burnt offering to God. Next, for the men, there was circumcision. For a Jewish boy, this was done when he was eight days old, but an adult male that wanted to convert to Judaism had to undergo the same procedure, regardless of his age. Among other things, it had the effect to be sure that these men were serious. They were not impulse buying into something because it seemed to be something that was a wave. And then the final step that the convert went through was <coughs> baptism. Baptism. And once it was completed, the Gentile proselyte convert was considered a Jew in every way. He or she fully renounced their previous life, their previous nationality, their previous allegiances. They were now fully Jewish in all ways. In that sense, the Gentile identity of that person died when they went under the water, and the new person that came up had a new name, a new identity when they came up out of the water. What John the baptizer did is take that proselyte convert model of people who wanted to become Jews, and he used it as a baptism of repentance for people who were already Jews. We have to remember, that baptizing in the Jordan River, these were folks, as I said, they were already Jews. John's task wasn't to get other people to become Jews. He needed to get existing Jews to realize their sin. And turn back to God. And that baptism was a moment of humility, commitment, and identification. Now as we saw a few minutes ago, when we baptize or when we dedicate a child, the parents make a public profession. As a church family, we make a public profession to support them of their intent to raise the child in the Christian faith. This points forward 
to the day when they will make their own profession of faith, when they will essentially confirm the covenant promise. When we use droplets of water in a baptism, it's a picture pointing forward to the day when they would go into the waters of baptism. So let's get back to the question I had asked earlier. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, the first reason is humility. Jesus lived a life of complete obedience to God. That's why we can say only Jesus was sinless, but baptism was an act of humility on his part. An act of humility that began when he was born and it ended with going to the cross. And in between those two events, some 33 years, he always obeyed his heavenly father. Now one of the more powerful descriptions of this is found in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, which, by the way, on Wednesday nights I've been teaching our teens on this passage. It's a well-known passage. Paul writes the following about Jesus. He says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So for Jesus, baptism is an act of humility, but it's also an act of commitment. It launched Jesus' ministry that would eventually point straight to the cross three and a half years later. Jesus followed his father's plan, even though he knew it would end with his own crucifixion. It was an act of humility and an act of commitment, but finally it was an act of identification. Jesus identifies with the very people he came to save. He took this step of obedience to identify with sinners, like you and like me. We have to remember the Christian faith is not just, we get, not just what we get from it. Following Jesus comes with a heavy element of obedience, and it takes the form of humility, commitment, and identification. So let's look back at all those different kinds of baptism. The Gentile proselyte converts baptism to become a Jew was about humility, commitment, and identification. Jesus going into the waters of baptism was about humility, commitment, and identification. Today, when we baptize a child, is a symbol looking forward to them making their own profession of faith and going into the waters of baptism. These are about humility, commitment, and identification. So let's go back to the passage we started out with this morning. Matthew chapter 3. In this case here, I'm quoting from the classic translation for its poetic beauty. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father not only identified who Jesus is, but he also endorsed John the baptizer's ministry in doing so. John baptized the Messiah who was to come. Can you imagine? That was an act of humility. John even said to him, Why, who are you to come to me to ask me to baptize you? And Jesus said, don't hesitate. We need to do this. Jesus humbled himself. That's why baptism is more than symbol. There is great substance in it but it also has great symbolic imagery. 
So let's talk about where this leaves us today. Every one of us falls into one of four categories. <clears throat> Here's the four categories. One, you were either saved, you came to a saving faith at some point, and then you were baptized. So that's one category. There are many of you that fit that description. Another one, when you were a child, you were sprinkled, I should have had quotation marks around that, as an infant, and then later you came to faith. Next category. You're saved, you're a believer, you've professed in Christ, but you haven't yet been baptized. And then the final category. You're not yet saved. You haven't yet made a profession in Christ. Here at First Union, historically, we've performed dedications as well as baptisms of infant children. We don't view the event as having a saving and redemptive power in and of itself, but it is a symbol. It points forward to something. It is a public profession of the parents. And quite honestly, the method is not anywhere near as important as the meaning. But let's understand something else. The Greek word, baptizo, translated directly into English, would have the meaning immerse, wash, dip, in the very earliest English translations of the Bible, it was transliterated. They made a new English word out of it. That's where the word baptize comes from. It's just anglicizing the Greek word baptizo. And the word can even be understood in different ways. That's why there's some honest, different understanding. What I would suggest is when we look at Jesus' example, it wasn't a moment that Jesus was saved. He didn't need to be saved. But it was an act of humility, commitment and identification. So let's wrap this up. It's an important issue. But let's understand, water baptism doesn't save and it doesn't complete our salvation, but to be honest with you, it really isn't optional either. It doesn't make a person more saved, but it is an important public step of obedience. And I know it's an emotional issue. It has baggage. Believe me, I know it has baggage. In my family, my parents more specifically, it has incredible baggage, particularly because of the full-term baby that my mother lost in the process of being born in 1963. I remember. I was four years old. It's a sensitive issue. It's been misunderstood. It's been misused for years in different places and in different ways. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that have been deeply hurt by the misuse. What we need to do is pray that the Holy Spirit will remove the baggage. He'll help us to see that Jesus set the example. Our desire should be to identify, to commit to him, and to humbly submit to him. And like the man in the story about the baptismal service in the river, baptism isn't where you find Jesus. Baptism is what we do after we found him because he found us. He called us to faith, and we do it for reasons of humility, commitment, and identification. And that, my friends, is my understanding of what baptism is, is all about. It is my prayer that this gives you a little better understanding of the different views, and that what we together did today with the Duman family in extending God's covenant promise to their daughter, Dottie, is something that we pray will result in her one day making a profession of faith 
in Jesus Christ. And we pray for that. We believe she is one of his. Indeed, he will see to it that she comes to faith. And all of us are part of that covenant promise. So with that in mind, will you please pray with me? Lord, we know that this is a difficult topic. It's an emotional one. It even has the elements of people who view this as a sacrament as opposed to as an ordinance. Depending on the background we grew up in, Lord, sometimes tradition almost carries greater weight than Scripture. And yet, we know that shouldn't be the case, as we spoke on two weeks ago. What Martin Luther wrestled with, when church tradition trumps Scripture, there's a problem. And help us, Lord, to see when that happens, and yet at the same time, to be graceful to our brothers and sisters who come from honestly different understandings of this. As we point forward, not only to the day when these children will make their profession of faith in you, but we point forward and look forward to the day when one day you will return and make all things new. Until that day, Lord, help us to occupy, as your word says. Help us to live our lives, but to do so to your honor and to your glory and to do so in a sense of humility, commitment, and identification. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.